Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology. This podcast is for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by learning directly from top industry leaders out there today. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Today's episode is a special episode. It's a presentation that I did on how to build a successful data science team. We talk about ways that you can attract and retain the best talent out there in the market. I hope you enjoy the episode. Let me know what you think. Awesome. All right. I might start. Thanks for being here, uh, especially Thursday evening. It's a beautiful day outside. So thanks for being indoors and uh, willing to listen to obviously building a data team. And the interesting thing is because you have different speakers on the same topic, you'll actually get different perspectives from different people. So you'll walk out tonight with a really sort of well-rounded idea of at least what we think and what we see as important for your data team. And I run a, a podcast called Data Futurology and... I started to put the meaning of the words because people are like, is futurology a word? Did you make it up? But actually, it does mean sort of prediction of the future and very, very closely tied to data. And the podcast is about data science. And in that, I interview chief data scientists, chief data officers, general managers of data science, and I get them to share what are their lessons learned, their mistakes that they made, and how they got to where they are. And the idea is to share that knowledge essentially with the community. So building your data team, my perspective is very is people-centric. So I won't be covering technologies. I won't be covering those approaches. I'll be covering how do you get people to come into your team? How do you get them to care about the work? How do you get the best out of them? That's the stuff that I'll focus on. So quick intro of myself. So I'm doing the podcast at the moment. Before that, I was head of data science at Institutional Division for ANZ Bank. Did that for about four years. Before that, I had my own business and had about 24 data scientists in there. We had about 50 people in the business. So teens as a consultant, as a business owner and working in-house. I've been in Australia for about 16 years working in data. And I'm originally from Chile, South America. And we have some people here who were basically my neighbors from Argentina. Um, but I'm from Chile. Thank Thank you. And this is what we'll talk about. So essentially what I mentioned before, attracting and screening talent. So a lot, a lot of people ask and ask me a lot, where do we find data scientists? Where do they hide? Where do they live? How do we get them to care about this organization? How do we make our work sexy to them? And I ask that a lot in the podcast as well. And I've interviewed, for example, a guy who works in oil and gas, but in natural resources. And he's ex-Google. And he went over and then he was like, he cracked the nut, I think. And he was like, how do I get people that can go to Google, that can go to Uber, how do I get them to come and work for me in oil and gas? So I'll talk about some of the points that him and I discussed. I'll tell you about what I think that people want and the ways that I've built my, my teams. And then we'll go to the advanced level. So we'll get, uh, we'll get into the level up. First part, attracting. So where do you find data scientists? How do you get them to come over to your organization? How do you get them to care? And as a lot of people know, data scientists are very curious people. They like the intellectual challenges. They like to be always under challenge and always learning and having the time for reflection. That's sort of a big, a big part of the attracting piece. And I think that's well known. What I believe that is less known, probably, is um, that in today's organizations, the ones that are building products around their data, and that can be data-driven products, or it can be data monetization, those are the companies that are winning when building data science teams in terms of getting more talent or better talent. 
So I think that at the moment, obviously this is my personal opinion, but I think at the moment that when you are getting data scientists to say, we will build this product for this part of the organization. And I mentioned before this guy that works on oil and gas in the UK. And what he was doing was getting his data scientists along with software developers to do optimizations on their plants. So the idea was to provide a product to all the people that run their big natural resources plants to say, this is how you can do your job better. As a data scientist, you get to see the feedback straight away. But the interesting thing is that these guys, instead of telling them directly, how do you do your job better? They made people curious about what they could do better. So the prompt that they were getting through the system said, hey Ram, two weeks ago, you were doing this exact same shift and you were performing, or you had the plant performing 2% better. Would you like to know how you did that? And then I wouldn't be able to help myself. I'd be like, yeah, tell me. And you are opting in, right? So they're sort of dangling the carrot. Like, hey, do you wanna know what you did well? Well, yeah, I wanna know. So you get that immediate buy-in that obviously allows the, the result of your analytics to be taken in much better and to be applied much, much better by the end user. So I think that a big part of attracting, obviously creating the learning environment for the data scientists, having continually challenging projects and focusing on their development. Yes, that's definitely, that's known. I think a, a current state of the market that at least I'm seeing is going onto this, uh, this creating products side. Then around the screening, a lot of questions that I get is, cool, we have people applying, how do we pick? How do we pick? Do I need the unicorn? Do I need to find a person who has super high maths and stats that can code amazingly and that has the amazing domain knowledge and obviously those people don't exist and you'll never find them because they are the unicorns. So then they go, what should I be looking for and how do I make sure that those are the people that I get in? And what I've done in building my teams, I end up looking for three things. The first one is that they impress me and the team, they impress us technically on at least one thing. And that can be, hey, they did their data engineering really well. Like in the data preparation, they were able to be very creative in creating new columns out of the data that we gave them for a project. Impressive. Or they applied this model in a really great way and it became a novel approach. Great. Or in the project that we gave them as part of the interview process, they didn't apply the fanciest model. But when they came to present, they were very aware of the shortcomings of their approach. So they came in and said, I had X amount of time, therefore I prioritize my time like this. And these are the pitfalls or these are the weaknesses in my approach. And they're very conscious of what they did. I've had people come into interviews that have models that are have completely overfitted the data. So they're not generalizable. They're very dangerous to use as predictive models because they match the data so closely, the data that the model has seen. And most likely the data coming into the, in the future will be different. So it's a really dangerous point. If somebody starts a presentation to say, hey, these are the insights I got from this model, but I actually went and overfitted the data, they're well aware of the dangers of their approach. And that's something that I think is still impressive. So they can, as long as they impress one thing, one technical thing. Then the second one that I look for is for people to be open-minded and to be willing to learn. And I usually test that in two different ways is I tell one of the interviews, we gave them a problem to discuss. So when I was working at the bank, it was saying, imagine you have credit card data for people in Australia. Think about the types of analysis that you, would, that you could do. Let's discuss some options, give them some time to think, and they might come up with three options. And you start, you let them walk you through the approach that they would take doing that analysis. And the way that I look for how open-minded they are and how flexible they are, really, it's looking at their ego as well. 
I start telling them, okay, cool. You said you would use Python for this. What if you couldn't use Python? And then they go, oh, well, I would, I don't know, I use R and then I would use this package. What if you couldn't use that package? Or what columns do you think are in the data? Great, what if we take these three columns out? And then at every step, it's saying adversity, adversity, adversity. <laughs> How do they react? Do they get defensive? Do they get angry? Or do they go, oh man, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I would actually do it like this, like this. And sometimes that can even turn into a discussion, right? Where you immediately go into working together on the problem. That's great. But you're looking for somebody that is open-minded that can take the, these challenges. And then the third point that I always look for is people that I and my team can be friends with. And I find that really, really important for data scientists because one of the things that I used to say in ANZ all the time is that data scientists, you have to import them. And obviously I'm biased because I'm a foreigner, I know, but in my, in my team when we were coming up to 50, we had one Aussie. And not that we were like discriminating against Aussies, not at all, but a lot of people come with these technical skills, come from other countries, and they're great. They're going through the interview process. So by having people, having that third leg as the friendship, side you can build a lot of trust in the team people when they were pointing out the faults of each other they didn't feel criticized they didn't feel threatened they didn't feel backstabbed because it was your friend telling you hey man you screwed up with this one and you're like ah sorry bro you have that and obviously if people are from overseas they don't have family here they don't have roots here they don't have friendships here yet so it's a, a way of helping them create that connection and and build that bond that we all need anyway so this goes to the what to look for as well those the three that I mentioned kind of during the screening. For the screening, the only other thing that I'll say is we had a three-part interview where in the first one, we had people come in and show us a project that they coded and they had to walk us through the code. For the second one, we had a live coding test where we had a room like this with their screen being projected and we gave them problems on SQL and on R or Python, their pick, and they had to code it live with about eight people watching them. No pressure, right? <laughs> easy and then if they did well on that we gave them a project for them to do on their own time and then to come and present their results or the insights of the data and that was a originally it was a project it was a data set that was too big to fit into one computer so they were forced to go to the cloud or use a distributed database like that was the idea but we didn't take into consideration Moore's law well enough so one year it didn't fit into one computer the year after it just fit and the year after that you could buy like a surface Pro and crunch all the data there. So anyway, I was trying to look for multiple skills, but I think that that's important. What I would change looking back is I would probably do a coding test earlier on. Instead of having the first interviewers come and show us a piece of code that you did, I would start and the first interview, I would change it and have a half discussion of who are you, what's your story, and what are you looking for? What would make you happy? And then half that and half a shorter coding test in the first interview, and then go on to the project one and then you can sort of bring it in. Some of the people that I've interviewed in the podcast, they have their coding test available online. And in the podcast, they say, here's the link to the data that we have and the problem statement. Anyone can go and, uh, and essentially try their hand at it. When you get the answer, submit it over here. And if your predictions are accurate enough, we'll give you a call. And the call is like, hey, come meet the team for drinks. Basically, you're in. <laughs> so obviously, there's different types of ways. That's my, uh, the original one was my way. And then there's people that have the coding test available for all. So we'll go to the next one, which is around, we spoke about where to find the talent, how to make it attractive for them to come and work with you, how to screen them, how to pick. So then the next stage is they're in, you're building the team, what now? 
And we spoke about having that learning environment and et cetera. And I think that that's really important. Obviously, paying enough is really important, as in it's a hygiene factor and something that needs to be, it's a concern that every, everyone has in terms of financial stability. And that's a concern that needs to be taken out of their mind by paying fairly, paying enough. I think that data scientists don't have that problem too much. But once you take the money issue off the table, there's three things that help you build a really great team, in my view. The first one's autonomy. So the idea here is that with your team, you give them the outcome that you're looking for and each person and as a team, they choose how they will get to that outcome. That can be complete free reign, which is like use whatever technology you want, use whatever obviously package you want, use cloud, use hybrid, use on-prem, anything and everything, buy data externally, scrape data, full, full, full autonomy. Or you can say, here's a couple of guidelines, go for your life. But these guidelines are like rail guards that give you a spectrum that people can run and find their own path to get to the outcome. One of the downfalls seen from this generally is that the work usually takes longer and it does. And generally, because you as the manager are more experienced, you know the answer and you want to tell them because you want to get to the outcome, outcome quicker or quickly. And also because as, as data people, we're natural problem solvers. We see a problem, we're like, I know it, let's do it. So those are two urges that you really have to roll back and fight against to give people the space and the freedom to make their own mistakes and to explore their own options as long as those mistakes are reversible. And then the idea there is that you really only intervene when they're about to do a non-reversible mistake and you explain the seriousness or the nature of it. But a lot of autonomy Second one is mastery. What does mastery mean? In mastery, the idea is that everyone has things that they want to improve on, things that they want to get better at. Sometimes people know that. They say, I want to build better machine learning models, or I want to get better at data visualization, or I want to be a better data engineer and be better at data preparation. Sometimes they know that or they look for that. You should be doing there as a manager is help them develop themselves along that pathway. That can be giving them the right projects, giving them time to do online courses, and then they have to present back to the team, or they can have to come up with ideas where they can apply that new knowledge, but give them a bit of leeway to build that skill that they want. They might be seconded, kind of, for three to six months to do just that engineering work. But the idea there is that they're getting better and better and better at what they want to do. The flip side is that some people don't know that a science is so vast that some people go, shit, like, what do I work on first? Do I need to become a unicorn? Like, there used to be three legs to the unicorn. Now there's like 16. What do I do? So in those cases, you do have to create almost like a plan, like a guideline of what are the skills necessary in your team, in your line of work. And people can start to self-measure themselves against those skills because if they self-measure, then they'll come up with the ones that they're either strengths that they want to work on or weaknesses that they want to improve. And they choose that. So autonomy and mastery. The third part is purpose, which is twofold. Purpose is really what brings us into work, what gets us out of bed every day. The twofold part is on one hand, purpose is about my, on one hand, it's about my individual contribution. So I'm part of the team. If I don't come to work today, you guys as my team, you feel it. The workday is gonna be less productive. It's gonna be slower. You're gonna be going throughout the day. Ah, oh, damn, Philippe is not here. I wish I could just ask him about this, or I wish I could just get this from him. So essentially, if I'm not, so for every individual to feel that if they're not there, then the team will suffer as a result, because then having that team spirit, and then you as one of the components, it gets you out of bed and it gets you into work. It's the same when people go for fitness, like go for, join a cycling club, 
and then start cycling. And if pe- if you don't show up, even though it's super early morning, if you don't show up, people are texting you. Hey, are you all right? Right? Or you have to let people know, hey, I'm not coming today. They go, oh man, that sucks. Right? So you have that accountability. And then that sort of team spirit is there on one side of the purpose. The other side of purpose is that the team is doing something that matters to the organization and to the outside world. So essentially, if I'm part of a team and my contribution is important, part A, but then my team is not doing something that I see valuable or something that I don't believe in, then this whole thing's going to break down. So as a manager, you need to make sure that you put into perspective the importance of the work. And sometimes it's like, hey, we're doing this work so people can get to work more efficiently. Like we look after public transport data and we want people to get to work more efficiently. And then you go, well, how do I make that more interesting or more important? And then you might find stories of, I don't know, like a single mom who has a couple of kids and needs to get to work and her morning's crazy, right? And the kids don't want to get out of bed and they're, you know, giving her a really hard time. And then her morning commute is a time where she's like, gets a moment to herself, a breath, and like she can have like a moment where she prepares for work and then goes and kills it in the office. You might try to find stories like that to say, hey, what we do here actually makes a difference for people. And if you can find those customer calls, calling into the call center, if you can find those customers' stories through app interactions, anything you can bring those people in, that's really important. But having the purpose of what we do as a team is important and what the, organi- the direction the organization is in is important. These are three I see as the three skills. That's fine to go to the next one. Thank you. And you might have seen those three as a uh, Part of a, they come in a book called A Drive by Dan Pink. Then we go to the third part. So this is the next level up. How do you level up? And the tip here is create a self-organizing team with the aim of making yourself as a manager, making yourself redundant. You want to create a structure, a way of working or an aim that allows people or the team to run itself. So by that, I mean, you will give them the guardrails to say, hey, we will be running this team using lean principles where we test every idea with as little effort as possible. And we will be doing agile. We will do lots of short iterations and we'll bring in the customer to make sure that we get the feedback. Make sure that you follow those things. That's how we deliver work and people keep each other accountable. Then you might say, here's the vision for what we're trying to do this month. Not like in three years time, we will be X because nobody can say what the world's going to need or be like in three years, right? So you got to be realistic. You say this month we achieve this, next month this, the month after that, done. Vision at a really high level to bring in the components that we had before. Otherwise, you can pair people to stakeholders. You two guys look after marketing. You two guys look after finance. You four guys will look after the data engineering to support these guys. So then there is that direct customer pool in terms of the requirements. And then the only other thing as we spoke before, we touched on before, is that sometimes you have to stop the team on making irreversible decisions. Or sometimes you have to make a call as a manager. You want to be doing that as rarely as possible and always explain, like over explain yourself as to why. An example there is when I was working at ANZ, we started the team and we were about 20 or 25 people at the time, and we had built a data processing pipeline that was half built in R and half built in Python. And in both of those languages, we found libraries that called the other language. So we could cross-call scripts and libraries to have the pipeline uh, running as one. And then we were mostly running on-prem and we wanted to go to the cloud because we were hitting the limit on what we we could process internally. We did, as a team, a decision, a piece of work to decide what cloud we were going to use. We had been testing AWS before, but then Google Cloud won. We were investigating Google Cloud and it was really attractive from the machine learning capabilities and the most advanced, most cutting edge capabilities on Google Cloud can be done in either Python or Java. That's it. 
So we are a team that we're half R, half Python, and we have to essentially now pick between Java or Python. The choice was easy, right? Python. There was a lot of discussion, like, and even a little bit of resistance from the team, like, do we, do we really need to use that cutting edge stuff? What if we do it like this, like that? And in the end, that was one of the cases that I had to say, hey, we're all going to transition to Python now. And that was interesting and difficult because I was one of the ones of the R guys. Like, uh, my background is in R, and if you listen to my heartbeat, it goes R, R, R. RR, right? So for me, it was like, hey guys, I know it's a pain now, but it's going to be much better for us in the future. And I have to make the effort to change as well. So let's all go to this new camp. And obviously the Python guys, they're, they're like, oh, I told you guys, R sucks, Python is the best. And obviously, you know the, the tension. So you want to provide this side and just uh, the next one will say what the team does. So they'll be implementing the, the guidelines that you give them. So work with autonomy, mastery, and purpose, work with that within the rail guards that you give them. They will take ownership of the problems because they're much more self-directed and they're personally accountable to stakeholders and customers. They'll be executing and they keep them each other accountable by building on the principles that we saw before of having that friendship, that trust, that good capability, those learning environments, having the mastery, the autonomy, the purpose. Then they go, hey, Jeff, I really want, need your help on this. And Jeff goes, sure, I'll push this other work so later on, lets people know it becomes a self-organizing team. <laughs> but essentially, it's almost like every node in the team is talking to each other and making adjustments to make um, the best outcome possible. So this is the advanced part of it. And then by doing this, you make yourself redundant. So if we can go to the next one, please. All right. Summary, summary, summary. So data scientists want exciting work. Learning opportunities, definitely known. Create this environment for them, right? I think that's, uh, in my view, that's the most important part. You might be the manager, you might be the boss, you might be this, like none of that matters. You work for them, they don't work for you. I was hoping that that became apparent through the presentation. You become their mentor, so you help them find their own path and you're there for safety, almost like helping a kid learn how to ride a bike. The parent's like, ah, right, if you're going to fall, I'm here. That's what you want, where they feel safe to try things, to do the work, they deliver, they're improving, and you're creating that psychological self, um, safe space. In my view, your number one aim for every job that you have should be make yourself redundant as quickly as possible. I wanted to put that in. I wanted to say as quickly as possible, but if I had, the letters would have been this big, like as quickly as possible. Because that, starting from that point of view, makes you think about every day in a much different way. Instead of focusing on what might make you feel important to say, hey, I need to be there for that meeting. Those customers need to speak to me. I make the call. You become the bottleneck. Slows the whole team down. People start to resent you. We've all had managers like that. Nobody wants that. But if you go, how do I make myself redundant? It's like, hey, here's some tools. What can I teach you? Here, you want to learn something? Go, but bring the knowledge back and share it. Find your own way. Take accountability. Be the face of the team. Go see that customer. Build the relationship with that stakeholder. Go, do good, right? Makes people really care. Next slide. Awesome. This is just about the podcast again. I mentioned before talking to essentially really senior people about how they got to where they are. We asked them some questions around what makes a great data scientist, what are the skills, how do I get the most out of my team, how do I make a good data strategy, how do I execute it, what should I be looking at in terms of machine learning or AI applications that I could bring from other industries. The podcast is in about 15 different platforms now. I couldn't find all the little icons, but if you go to a homepage, it'll all be there. And these are some of them, the Apple one, Google, Spotify, SoundCloud, etc. Thanks so much, guys. Let's have a drink. Boost your data science career with skills that count. James Cook University's 100% online.
Master of Data Science is one of Australia's fastest. Study while you work and focus on just one subject at a time. Visit online.jcu.edu.au for more information. As data scientists, we're always looking for ways to gather more data and to understand our customers better. Firebox do just that. With Firebox, you can easily create a quiz for your app, website, or blog. These quizzes are used to generate leads, educate, or engage your customers. Check them out today. That's Firebox with a Y, so F-Y-R-E-B-O-X.com. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.